Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Bunker Global, where we tell you what you need to know about news and politics from around the world. The world changes every second, so every Friday, we're here to make it feel a little easier to understand. On today's edition, Canada and India's relationship reaches tense new lows. Azerbaijan and Armenia restart a decades-old conflict. What are the global ramifications? And more coups in Africa. Why are they so common in former French colonies? I'm Chris Jones, and joining me to discuss the world today is senior editor at Vice and author of Africa is Not a Country, Deepo Faloyan. Deepo, you're very busy at the moment. I, I see that you're heading off to, to Lagos. What's that about? Yes, so I'll be in Lagos in November for this really, really great book festival called the Ake Book Festival. Nice. And it brings together a lot of really great authors from across the region. And so it's a, a week-long event. We visit schools and, and talk to kids about our, our work and, um, you know, try and get them writing as well. And so it's just this really, really exciting time. I'm Nigerian. My family are from Lagos. So uh, it's kind of my first uh, book event uh, back in our family's hometown. So it's uh, really exciting for me. Excellent. And, and what kind of things are, are talked about there? Is it is it something that you go and you, you get a chance to network with people as well? Yeah. So it, 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 you, you sort of network and, um, you know, there, there'll be these writing classes as well. Um, but you get to talk about each other's work and um, about writing and, and the future of writing across the continent and, and different styles and genres. So it's a real eclectic festival um, that is really built around kind of the audience and uh, around kind of sharing ideas and concepts across uh, literature around around Africa. And I guess a chance to to raise up African authors that necessarily aren't put out there that often as well, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, It's a really, really great opportunity for authors across the continent to talk about their work um, and to uh, present it on a platform that is their own um, and it isn't sort of uh, caught amongst the kind of the the typical stereotypes of of African writing. You know, it's far more specific country by country. um, And it's a really, really great festival that I'd always recommend people go and check out. Excellent. Depot, that's enough positivity from you. Let's Um, end that right now. There's a lot of sadness going on around the world, and we're going to talk all about it. Should we crack on? Absolutely. Excellent. So first of all, on the Bunker Global, Canada has accused India of being involved in the assassination of a Sikh activist named Hardeep Singh Najjar. Speaking in Parliament, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau said authorities were looking into credible allegations, adding that they would do what it takes to hold those responsible to account. Shocking the accusations haven't gone down too well with Narendra Modi, who responded by expelling a Canadian diplomat from India. Uh, Deepo, let's step back. What are the allegations that are being said here? Yes, I mean, the allegations are really as bad as it gets. You know, Canada are accusing a foreign government of murdering a Canadian citizen on Canadian soil. In this case, uh, Hardeep Singh Nijar, who was killed outside of a Sikh temple earlier this year, by two masked assailants. And 
Justin Trudeau has come out, uh, gave a speech to Parliament saying that they have credible evidence that what they call agents of the Indian government um, were behind this murder. And what what are India saying? They've now uh, expelled this Canadian diplomat from its country. Is that not just quite a a common reaction from countries when when things like this happen? Yeah, once you expel a diplomat, often that is met with an expulsion of of your own diplomat in that same country. And India have have denied the allegations in the fullest possible terms. Um, they've they've said that uh, Canada are being reckless with these allegations. They are saying that Canada are not being cooperative with them. Um, they are saying that Canada. Are focusing on the wrong things, when instead uh, what India have asked Canada to do is to focus on what they uh, allege are domestic terrorists who Canada are hiding, which which in and of itself is, is a pretty big charge to, to make against Canada. And you said the word reckless there. That's really interesting. Do you, do you think there is any sentiment of recklessness here in these allegations? Because on the face of it, India is someone that Canada would want to stay friends with. You know, India is this um, global superpower and it's getting more powerful pretty much day by day now. Canada wouldn't want to sour the waters at all, really. They'd want to stay friends with India, surely. Yeah, I mean, you would think that, you know, Canada wouldn't make an allegation like this unless they had pretty solid evidence and proof. And so in the coming days and months, you know, Canada are going to have to put forth the evidence that they have to suggest that India have targeted uh, Hardeep in Canada. Again, he's a Canadian citizen. And so, you know, that is as bad of a thing as a government can do to another country. And, you know, in this case, obviously, there is there is history between uh, Hardeep and, and the Indian government. And no one is denying that the Indian government are no fans of Hardeep and his beliefs and his movement, um, you know, trying to seek an independent Sikh nation um, in the Punjab region of India. But there's one thing to not be a fan of someone and there's another thing to, you know, orchestrate his murder uh, on behalf of, of state actors. Yeah, let's talk about that history a little bit more. As you say, Hadi was uh, allegedly involved in in trying to set up an, an unofficial referendum for a separate uh, Sikh nation within uh, India. And as you say, there have been backers of him right across the world. They've also been um, uh, expelled almost from, from um, India as well. How serious was this man? And do you think, it's a horrible way to put it, but do you think there were any uh, reason that India would want him uh, assassinated? Well, there are reasons in which India would consider him to be a troublemaker in the sense of someone who has pushed for a significant part of northern India to become an independent state called Khalistan, which would be a Sikh nation. Sikhs make up about 2% of the Indian population, but they are a majority in the northern uh, Punjab region. And so, you know, in that sense, you can understand the Indian government's kind of frustrations um, to to go as far as to you know try and uh, have him killed on foreign soil is 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 another sort of big step. But you know they've been open about their frustrations with Hardeep. Uh, he moved to Canada in the 1990s. He was declared essentially a terrorist by the Indian state about a decade later, and and, and so that they've been very open with you know their feelings about Hardeep and, and the movement that he supports towards a referendum to create an independent uh, state within India. But they have, have said that, that they would never go as far as to 
actively have him killed. You know, I, I, they are saying that, you know, in an ideal world, he'd come back to India and he'd face the charges that he's being accused of. But, you know, a, again, going back to kind of their own accusations against Canada, they're saying that Canada are harboring uh, individuals like Hadeep. And, and and that is something that the Canadian government have, have rejected. And he is a Canadian citizen and he certainly is entitled to live in Canada. And, and just to wrap up on this, do you think the likes of, as you mentioned, the United States and uh, Great Britain, do you think they're likely to want to get involved almost? We talk about the relationship between Canada and India, but there are lots of countries that don't want to rock the boat with India at the moment, as I say, as an, an emerging global superpower. So do you think that the United States and the UK and other countries that are involved in this, in the G20 as well, do you think they'll be reluctant to get involved in what's happening here? I think they'll certainly be reluctant to get involved before evidence is put forward. They've 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 sort of said that they're willing to listen to both sides and that they want um, you know both sides to try and de-escalate the tension. I think kind of de-escalation is 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 really key at this point because you know Justin Trudeau almost came out of nowhere with this speech to Parliament um, making these allegations, and I, I think you know things have gone very far, very fast. And I think it's really important uh, that, you know, the truth is put out there for people to kind of analyze themselves and for any tension to be diffused as quickly as possible. Hi, I'm Katie Riley. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, Donald Trump became the first former U.S. president in history to face a criminal trial. The defendant repeatedly made false statements on New York business records. This is not a trial. This is not a, an act of criminality. We cannot and will not normalize serious criminal conduct. This is the story of his first week in court told through the transcripts. Listen now to the Slow Newscast wherever you get your podcasts. Next. Azerbaijan's military forces launched an anti-terrorist operation, where have we heard that before, on the breakaway region of Nagorno-Karabakh on September 19th. It's the largest escalation in the warring between Azerbaijan and Armenia since 2020, when thousands of people on each side were killed. It's not a surprise for those involved. Tensions have been mounting for a while, and this conflict spans decades, back as far as 1988, in fact. And this isn't a war concerning just two countries. Many have interests here. The EU bloc, for one, sees Azerbaijan as a possible replacement for Russian gas. But this latest development is a setback. The latest is that a ceasefire agreement is imminent after Azerbaijan claimed to have achieved its set-out objectives. But it's definitely not the end of the conflict. To understand all of this a little better, I spoke to Lawrence Brewers, Associate Fellow for the Russia and Eurasia Programme at Chatham House. And I started by asking him to lay out what this war is about. Well, it's a conflict that has a very long history and prehistory. The modern phase of the conflict is associated with the collapse of the Soviet Union in the late 1980s, um, a region that had an ethnic Armenian majority called Mountainous Karabakh, or Nagorno-Karabakh in Russian, wanted to separate uh, from Azerbaijan and basically ran a kind of an independence campaign, wanted to unite uh, with neighboring Armenia, and uh, a very long and, and very bitter conflict characterized by very severe human rights violations resulted 
And Armenia and Azerbaijan were basically reborn as independent states at war with one another. Uh, Armenia won that first round of the conflict. And in Nagorno-Karabakh, an unrecognized republic established itself, never been recognized by any United Nations member state, not even Armenia. Right. And this situation persisted uh, until 2020. There was a second war. Azerbaijan turned the tables, retook a lot of territory. Uh, And since then, we've had regular short sort of two, three-day escalations. And uh, this is only the latest of those this week. Uh, let's let's talk about that a bit more because to many people who perhaps haven't followed any of this they probably never really realized that a conflict was going on in this region looking at what has happened are you surprised that this escalated in the way it has so recently this week no i'm I, i'm not really surprised you know in 2020 there was a, a six week war that azerbaijan won a ceasefire was brokered uh, by russia but the resulting situation left part of this nagorno karabakh entity still under armenian control with russian peacekeepers in place was an inherently unstable uh, situation it was basically a truncated or an incomplete victory for Azerbaijan. And so I think it's uh, uh, absolutely to be expected that Azerbaijan would be making efforts to try to complete its victory. And I think the Ukraine war has given the perfect cover uh, for that to happen. And we've actually seen ongoing ceasefire violations and small flare-ups uh, consistently over the uh, the last couple of years. There's been a blockade of Armenian-populated Karabakh over the last nine months, Um, And in recent weeks, many reports of Azerbaijani troop movements. So I think this was very much uh, expected uh, and not really any surprise at all. And what kind of fighting have we seen over the past uh, couple of days or so? I've been trying to follow on on social media and seen lots of uh, videos and audio clips of of heavy shelling, as it it seems. What exactly have we seen happening uh, in the city of, for example, Stepanakur? Well, what we're seeing is the advance of the Azerbaijani army, which is equipped with state-of-the-art military technology, including a wide variety of precision missiles, many of them provided by Israel. It's a key arms seller to Azerbaijan. And they've been fighting the remnants of this entity, the Nagorno-Karabakh Defense Army. Now, there's an awful lot of controversy as to whether the Republic of Armenia still has armed forces in Karabakh. This is the key Azerbaijani claim that it is fighting forces from the Republic of Armenia. But these are effectively, uh, one might think of them as Karabakh Armenian militias. There may be recruits there that, that originate from the Republic of Armenia, but Armenia has no effective operational command or control uh, in Karabakh. So it's been a very asymmetric struggle which explains why it only lasted for a day. Yep. Uh, the Karabakh army population is also weakened, of course, by the blockade. Um, and there are concerns now about Azerbaijani advances into urban centers where there are large numbers uh, of displaced people. In this region of, of Nagorno-Karabakh, what are conditions like for people? Because they've been living with this reality for such a long time. Normal people who don't really have a stake in this war. What are conditions like for them? Because from what I can see on social media right now, it seems pretty terrible. Yes. Uh, you know, This has been a very isolated part of the world uh, for decades It's been ruled by this unrecognized entity. There have been no diplomatic relations with the outside world. 
So it's basically a kind of a subsistence economy. You know, you've got agriculture and so on, but it's it's very dependent. Uh, and I think this is one of the key key factors in what we're seeing is that there is this kind of reckoning with geography. Nagorno-Karabakh is, geographically speaking, an enclave. It's entirely surrounded by Azerbaijani territory. And so it's very vulnerable to blockade. What we've seen since December of last year is that only Russian peacekeepers and the International Committee of the Red Cross have had access to the population. So there's been this process of humanitarianization of the Armenian community there, and conditions really are pretty desperate. And I, I want to talk about the, the impact that this has on, on the rest of the world as well, because I've seen a lot of people talking about how this is relatively, uh, in comparison to, to Ukraine, a, a small conflict, but it could erupt into something much larger because of the countries that have a stake in this and that are involved. Now, we've seen the EU trying to broker energy deals with, with Azerbaijan, for example, as a way to almost replace Russian energy. Um how are the likes of Ursula von der Leyen and, and other Western world leaders really reacting to what we've seen over the past couple of days? The reaction has been rather tepid, one might say. I think what we're seeing represents a kind of failure uh, for the European Union and United States efforts uh, to mediate a solution to the conflict. They have been calling for an internationally mediated dialogue uh, between the Azerbaijani state and uh, the Karabakh Armenian community. As we speak right now, there are negotiations ongoing about the terms of integration uh, of the community, but this seems to be happening even as ceasefire violations are being uh, reported. So I think with regard to the EU, uh, this is a, a soft power, a normative power, and it's operating in a hard power context. It's really uh, Russia uh, and Turkey who call the shots, as it were, yeah. in the South Caucasus. Uh, and then you've got Iran as well to the south, uh, which is another key power with a rather ambiguous positioning vis-a-vis -vis this conflict. But yeah, what, what we've seen is global multipolarity cascading down into this already fractured region with devastating consequences. It's really interesting that, that Russia have such a, a big involvement in this, um, especially with uh, the ongoing war in, in Ukraine and their invasion. They're, how involved can they be in what we've seen over the past two or three days? I know there are peacekeepers there in the region at the moment. W what kind of role are Russia playing in this and what have they played historically as well? Well, Russia is uh, in the form of the Russian Empire and then the Soviet Union. It's the former imperial hegemon. And it very much sees the South Caucasus as part of its uh, sphere of influence, what Russians refer to as their near abroad, along with the other uh, former Soviet republics. And in 2020, Russia brokered uh, the end of the uh, Second Karabakh War, and as you mentioned, installed a, a long-coveted peacekeeping mission in Karabakh, so Russian boots on, on the ground. But what we've seen is that this attempt to establish hegemony over the region has been uh, thoroughly contested, first of all by Azerbaijan, which, as I mentioned, is looking to complete its victory, uh, absolutely doesn't want to have uh, Russian peacekeepers uh, on its soil. Uh, yeah. Even Armenia has been uh, questioning its relationship uh, with Russia. Uh, Russia's capacity to be the patron of the region seriously debilitated uh, by the course of the war 
uh, in Ukraine. And it is facing competition from Turkey, which is increasingly also uh, asserting its influence around its neighborhood. Um, I think with regards to the violence that we've seen this week, a key question is whether Russia was the green lighter, uh, gave a green light for this, or yeah. whether it was a bystander. Certainly its reputation uh, as a peacekeeper is absolutely in tatters. And, and just coming back to what you were saying about uh, condemnation, there hasn't been a whole lot of serious condemnation, it seems, for the role that uh, Azerbaijan has played in this. Do you think that we could potentially see the EU, for example, place some kind of sanction uh, upon Azerbaijan for what's happened? I think the prospect of sanctions on Azerbaijan is is quite unlikely. Um, there have been some warning remarks that while this gas deal that the EU has signed with Azerbaijan uh, since the Ukraine war uh, is not currently being reconsidered or, or, or reevaluated, over the longer term, the relationship with the EU might be affected uh, by events on the ground in Karabakh. But I think you have to remember that the EU is a collective actor and mm. different member states have got very different relationships uh, with Armenia and Azerbaijan. And that inhibits the capacity of the EU to really come up with a clear policy line. France, for instance, um, has stood out as a supporter uh, of Armenia, whereas other states such as Hungary, Italy, Romania um, are uh, more questioning uh, of Armenia's position and, and more likely to support uh, Azerbaijan. So this inhibits the, the emergence of a central policy line. I think you also have to remember that the EU doesn't really see itself as a hard power actor. It's all about positive incentivization. And I think that has kind of come up against uh, a brick wall uh, in the South Caucasus in this particular context. Let's come back to the uh, the conflict as it is, as it's happening right now. You mentioned that there are ceasefire talks in place. What is in that agreement, as it were, or, or those um, uh, measures that are being put forward as part of this ceasefire agreement to essentially try and end the conflict that we're seeing? And do you think it has any chance of holding this ceasefire, considering that this has been going on for such a long time now? Well, there are three three core elements uh, to the ceasefire agreement that was brokered yesterday. The first is that uh, any forces belonging to the Republic of Armenia need to go back to Armenia. That's a contested claim uh, for reasons I outlined earlier as to whether there are actually any forces from the Republic of Armenia as opposed to local yeah. uh, Karabakh Armenian militias in place. The second element is that all local armed forces, the so-called Nagorno-Karabakh Defense Army, must disarm and surrender their weapons. And the third and probably uh, most crucial element is this notion of integration. So Azerbaijan says that it has a package, and this package outlines the rights that Karabakh Armenians can expect in the Azerbaijani uh, state. And they basically revolve around some cultural rights, access to native language uh, education, some uh, representation in municipalities. This would make the Karabakh Armenians another minority like others in Azerbaijan, for instance, the Talish in the south, Lesgins uh, in the north. And this is framed as Azerbaijani multiculturalism. But I think, you know, the Karabakh Armenians are not just any minority. There's this long history of conflict. There are specific security concerns. And I think what we can expect to see in the coming days and weeks is a substantial outflow of people 
uh, from the region. And I don't exclude that there will be renewed incidents uh, of violence in and around Karabakh. And beyond that, uh, around the areas of the international borders uh, between Azerbaijan and Armenia. So that, all of that to say, this is not over. Yeah, an, an impossible amount of moving parts in, in this situation. We're going to try our best to, to keep our eye on it, as I'm sure uh, you are, Lawrence. Thanks thanks very much for, for joining me and, and uh, imparting your wisdom with us. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Finally today, Africa is no stranger to coups, but they have become less frequent over the past decade or so. But saying that, military intervention is still very present. Gabon is the latest to overthrow its leadership, but there are active coups in multiple areas, including Niger, which is also a former French colony. Sudan leads the way with the most attempts, 17 in total, six of which have been successful, none of which, though, seem to have solved Sudan's problems. Depot, there are quite a few more uh, where coups have taken place across Africa. I'm not an expert. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert, but you are, thankfully, so you can shed some light on this for us. Why do you think we've seen so many coups across the continent, but specifically where former French colonies are? Yeah, so these seem to be uh, rejections of what kind of people in those countries consider to be kind of neo-colonialism. One thing about France is that they stayed incredibly close with their former colonies. It was sort of part of the independence agreement. Um, and, you know, France sort of said, you know, we will open up our own economy and we will open up France for, for travel and migration as long as we maintain some kind of economic and uh, military relationship with your countries. And often that is seen as and has become to be seen as particularly burdensome on these nations. Uh, France often meddles in internal affairs in a number of these countries. They have uh, literally stationed troops in those countries in which, you know, in France say that they're doing so only to help tackle terrorism within these countries. And in some cases, it has been helpful. But in other cases, uh, many people see it as France trying to maintain this sort of dominant colonial control. And so in recent sort of months, and probably actually since 2019, you've seen movements pushing back against that, and especially movements pushing back against you know, leaders and politicians who uh, many across the country feel are too close to France. And at the same time, you've had Russia and the mercenary group Wagner uh, basically saying that, you know, we will provide the same uh, economic and military support as France were doing, but we won't uh, make any claims or we won't give our opinion on how you uh, run your society. And, and and in some cases, you know, a few countries have found that to be a pretty reasonable offer. And in any case, they've kind of tried to push back against France, uh, in, in some cases, to simply just spite France. So it's quite complicated country by country. Um, but, you know, often it's kind of, it, it comes down to this sort of concept of neocolonialism. How would the likes of Emmanuel Macron see uh, these kind of uh, uprisings, but also the displays of hate, uh, I guess you could call it, towards um, the French government. Can they get involved in any of these these coups? And if they did, would that not just make things worse? Yeah, certainly. Um, and, you know, France have taken it pretty hard. I think there were some warning signs before uh, this happened in, in sort of countries saying that, you know, we don't really appreciate being spoken down to and we don't really appreciate the extent to which you 
want to get involved in our internal affairs. Um, and a lot of that was ignored by uh, Macron and the French government. And so now that these coups have happened, you know, you're seeing uh, Macron in particular sort of take the rejection of France's influence quite personally. Um, and, you know, many kind of see it as too little too late. Um, he, is, he has said that, you know, he's willing to shift that relationship now. But, you know, that's something that a lot of people are finding hard to believe. So it, 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 it really is a, a you know, a colossal shift. You know, France have been involved in many of these countries since the 1800s, late 1800s. Yeah. Um, and so now suddenly in the space of, you know, just a few years, they are losing a lot of their relationships and uh, their influence across the continent. And it's something that they really weren't prepared for. And what does it mean to to lose those relationships? What what does France lose? And, and do those former colonies as well, like, for example, Gabon and, and, and Niger, what do they lose out on, on having a worse relationship with France? So uh, it's, it's a very good question. And, you know, France will say that, you know, we've opened up our country to... Uh, to your citizens to come and live and work um, within France. Um, but in, in some cases, that's come at a price. You know, some countries have uh, agreements with France that say, you know, France uh, has to approve any loans the country wants to to get internationally. Um, France feel like that's a, a reasonable price to pay um, for having this sort of close relationship. There are many, you know, within these countries who have enjoyed being able to go and live and work in France and have enjoyed that sort of familial relationship with the country. Uh, it, it, it all just depends at what cost. And and that is sort of the challenge. France have this sort of on the ground influence. You know, they've been able to base troops in the region. Some will say that, you know, that has allowed them to have access to certain natural resources as well in a way that, you know, the British have not in their former colonies. You know, when, yeah. the, when the British left, they left and they were forced to leave and they've really... Uh, struggle to maintain these sort of close relationships uh, that the British could define in the way that France have been able to define their relationships with their former colonies. And and so that is really what France are losing by this. Um, and, you know, what a lot of these African countries are gaining is, is more independence in their own personal matters. Whether that independence, you know, works out in the long run to the benefit of their people, we don't know yet. Um, but certainly, uh, there is this sort of cathartic release that has come from being able to kind of say, you know, this relationship now is going to be on our terms. And it's now for France to determine, you know, how they want to shift that relationship. And for for nations like Gabon, for example, which is uh, kind of the most recent example of, of a coup that we've seen uh, across that continent, is the 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 anti-France rhetoric, is, is that... Um, is that echoed across the whole the whole nation? Is, is do the majority of the population feel like that, or is it just a small pocket? Do you think that's the difficult thing with with coups? You know, when you know straight after a coup, you see people taking to the streets. Now, you know, people who are against coups often they're not going to be the ones who are going to rush onto the streets. You know, right. they, you know, it's it's going to be the supporters who are going to take to the streets. So it's one of the difficult things. It's, it's always hard to fully ascertain how much public support there is. Um, in the case of Gabon, you know, you had one family who had essentially ruled the country since independence um, for the past 56 years. Yeah. And so, you know, there, there certainly will be a feeling that it's time to move on. Um, you know, can you really claim it's a democracy if, if, if you have one father and son rule the country, you know, even if they were having elections, you know, there are questions about, you know, these elections and and just how much of the state this one family had captured. And many people felt that 
France had had helped support this family and helped support the last president who, you know, was was elderly. He, he was ill. He'd had yeah. a stroke recently. He wasn't the most active of people. And yet, you know, he was regularly visiting France and Macron was basically holding him up. Um, and, and so th- there are those frustrations as well as like, you know, are France really supporting democracy? Uh, is it more democratic to try and push back against, uh, you know, this sort of state capture by one family? And so these are all the questions that, you know, Gabon and its people are going to have to uh, are going to have to answer in, in, in the coming days, you know, what, what is best for them moving forward? And, and that, that is a difficult question, uh, you know, and, and so you can often kind of get military leaders taking advantage of a moment. Um, right. the, the question then becomes, you know, will this moment eventually benefit the people? And, and, and that's for the people to decide. And we, uh, you've touched on how Macron's dealing with this and how France's government is 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 dealing with these uprising, these coups. What about ECOWAS, though? What about its power and its ability to to defend against um, things like this, but then to um, re-secure stability in these countries where we've, we've seen coups? How much power does it have and is it equipped as it is right now to deal with what we've seen? Yeah, I mean, that's a really great question. And its power is being tested right now. Um, After the recent coup in Niger, uh, ECOWAS gave the coup leaders about a week to return power to the democratically elected leader. That week deadline was about two months ago now. And they have, you know, essentially ignored ECOWAS and ECOWAS have sort of threatened that, you know, all options are on the table. And, you know, they haven't yet shown whether they can actually back up their rhetoric with with action. Um, You know, ECOWAS, which is currently being led by the Nigerian president, you're seeing many people in Nigeria, uh, a country that borders Niger, saying, you know, we don't want a war with with Niger. Um, and and so it, it's it's difficult to kind of see long term where that power is going to come from, whether they choose to ignore the will of, of people across West Africa who, who who don't really see how conflict will really benefit anyone. But ECOWAS have other means, they have other diplomatic means, they, they have people on the ground across these countries yeah. who are negotiating um, with the with the with the coup leaders trying to work out what the best path forward is. And and I think ECOWAS certainly can play a role if they're strategic. Um, but, you know, it, it, right now, it, it, it's a real test of their power um, and, and whether there is still this uh, need for this sort of region-wide um, body. And then just finally, Depot, the people that are involved in this, because there are millions upon millions of people that are impacted by mm-hmm. uh, these coups and then the conflicts that, that that follow and the political division that um, is involved in all of this. For countries such as uh, Sudan, for example, where I, I read the stat where there have been 17 attempts, mm-hmm. a lot of those people would never have really known peace, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so is there a feeling amongst some nations that this is never going to end. And, and and do you feel, do you sometimes worry that for, for the continent that this is never going to end and we're just going to keep seeing this cycle after cycle of coup attempts? Yeah, it's it's a really important question. It, it's worth kind of, you know, taking a step back and looking kind of wider across the continent. You yeah. still have 90% of the continent is under democratic rule. Yeah. And so this is happening in a, a sort of small pocket of, you know, former French colonies mainly. And there's sort of the relationship with France and and in internal party political issues. And and so, you know, th- th- there, there tends to 
be a reason behind each individual coup attempt. Um, Sudan is a really great example. You have a, a nation that has really struggled to find its identity, um, which is why you know you ended up with the creation of South Sudan, um, and you, you have the a, a very sort of specific series of of events that have led to this sort of constant. Uh, destabilizing factor. So, you know, if, if you are Sudanese, certainly you'll have this feeling of, you know, when will things settle down? And it really isn't obvious in that case. There'll be people in Gabon who will feel like, you know, for the first time since independence, perhaps they will have better control over their country uh, without the influence of this one family ruling us. Um, and so, you know, in, in that case, perhaps they're looking at maybe this leading to more stability, but that depends on you know uh the the current crop of military leaders and, and whether they will allow the people to choose their leaders so i think there is this kind of feeling that you know when are some of these kind of colonial effects going to 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 wear off it's about 60 years since the independence era right. um you know countries have are in the position where they're kind of moving forward and they're looking to the future and they're trying to um to live with these countries that were created during the colonial era and you know there have been so many positive steps forward overall i think it's more positive than negative but but certainly it is something as we see with ECOWAS's attempts that region-wide bodies are concerned about and they certainly want to be involved in and and so it's that sort of fundamental question like when will things sort of settle down and and i think you're kind of seeing a lot of kind of positive developments across the region Excellent. Well, let's hope that there's even more positive steps forward for uh, countries such as Gabon yeah. and, and Niger in the future um, and that the, the political division there can, can, can be solved. Depot, thanks so much for your time. When are you off to Lagos? Uh, I'm off uh, mid-November. So the festival is between the 22nd and the 25th of November. Excellent. Well, best of luck with that. Thank we'll you be, so much. We'll be looking out for it. Appreciate it. And that's the end of this edition of The Bunker Global. Listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, we release others just like this every Friday. Not only is there a whole library of a thousand other episodes to choose from already, there's also a new bunker every day. And remember, you can get them before everyone else, as well as exciting new merchandise, but only when you back us on Patreon. Sign up, chuck us three quid a month, and we'll keep important conversations like this going. Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Jones, reporting from the bunker. The Bunker Global was written and presented by Chris Jones and Deepa Faloyan. The producer was Liam Tate. The production assistant was Adam Wright. And audio production was by me, Simon Williams. The managing editor is Jacob Jarvis. The group editor is Andrew Harrison. With music by Kenny Dickinson and artwork by James Parrott, The Bunker Global is a Podmasters production.